Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that will report OSHA violations. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance substack The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector and book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. I'm Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Heymond Reads. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance at the Substack Restorative Romance. Today, we're finishing our journey through Patricia Gaffney's Wickerly trilogy. Published in 1996, the final installment in the trilogy, Forever and Ever, is an enemies-to-lovers class difference romance between Connor Pendarvis, a man who goes undercover in copper and tin mines to expose shoddy working conditions, and Sophie Dean, the young and beautiful owner of Wickerly's copper mine called Gelder. Historical romance loves to explore class difference romances and romantic pairings. Think of the governess and the duke, the courtesan and the viscount, the merchant and the debutante. The conflict comes from external perceptions of the relationship, miscommunication based on different upbringings, and sometimes scorched pride. Forever and Ever does all three, but because the conditions and minds in the Victorian era were so unforgiving, the stakes are inevitably raised. Quote, the Cornish miner inched his way forward by painful degrees. The tin and copper were thinly decimated by very hard rock, and progress in boring them was very slow, writes Raphael Samuel in Miners, Quarrymen, and Saltworkers. He then quotes Joseph Watson in 1843. One, two or three feet in a week or a few inches daily is often the whole amount of the united operations of 20 or 30 men. Quote, in a copper mine, the worker also had to contend with great heat. The fast ends, which the tut worker encountered at the blind extremities of a shaft, were possibly the most murderous mining conditions in the world, with so little oxygen and so much heat that it's impossible to work for more than 20 minutes at a stretch. What do you do when the woman of your dreams is also the source of your suffering? Is this a gap that can or should be bridged? Forever and Ever takes on the difficult questions, but doesn't provide easy answers. There's no refined neatness to life and love, and labor is at the center of everything. Okay, so now we've read all three of the Wickerly trilogy. What are your initial thoughts on Forever and Ever? I feel like I like it more as more time passes. Like, I read it. And then I texted Emma that she needed to read it immediately so we could all talk about it. And then I reread it again this morning. And yeah, just every time I'm like noticing new things because I'm like prepared for it. I'm like, okay, I know this dynamic. So I just notice, say, like Connor's anger more, like just how he will like bait Sophie sometimes into an argument. And I just, I feel for both of them. It's not like, I, I just feel deeply for Connor. Like I, I see why he's so angry but that anger just spills over sometimes. I think about the this book being the third in the trilogy, especially since we've recorded these episodes, like talking about the other two books. I think I would still say To Have and To Hold is my favorite, which makes sense. Like prison, sort of justice questions of that is sort of like my favorite thing in romance. But I think it makes mo- so much sense for this to be the last one in the series. And I think we're going to talk about this later when we talk about all three together. But like Chell said, labor at the center of everything. We get two books where that are set in this town where the economy is based on this mine and it's sort of behind all the activity in Wickerly is the economy of the mine and like how do they it, people are endangered by the mine in the other two books people, like the community centers around the mine schedule and now we have someone who's like literally going down into the mine and also 
is upset about it. Like, this is not just a backdrop anymore. It's something to be confronted. It's something to be questioned. So it makes sense that this is the last one because it's sort of been, like, going towards this the whole time. Like, we're finally at the center of Wickerly. We are at the the mind that just everything about Wickerly centers on. So it really does feel like a culmination. And it's like, you can't have Wickerly without the mind, and you can't have the series without this book. Yeah, the mind's been looming in the background for a little while now. And I felt so annoying before you both had read this book. Because I, I kept being like, just wait till you get to Forever and Ever. Because um, I think I'm like you, Emma. Like, I, I feel like I don't know if To Have and To Hold or Forever and Ever is my favorite. Probably To Have and To Hold. But I have such a soft spot for this one. It just like, I like it so much. Um, so I'm... I think you could read To Have and To Hold by itself. Like, I don't think Forever and Ever... Like, I hope people read this book. And if you want to read it without reading the other two, because it calls to you, I think that's fine. But I do think this book is very importantly connected to the other two in a way that, like, I felt like I, because I read To Have It To Hold without reading the other two first. And I was able to enjoy it and fall in love with it immediately. This one, I think, really needs to be, like, you need that loomingness of the mind. Mm-hmm. It's so important to this book. So I think mm-hmm. maybe that's the difference. It's like, To Have It To Hold is a standalone, but forever and ever as a part of Wickerly is maybe mm-hmm. my ranking. Yeah, that's a very good point. Like, I think particularly because Forever and Ever wraps up a lot of the sto- stories of the side characters. So, like, that impact just would make no sense if you... Whereas to having to hold the side character subplots are usually more contained. But yeah, uh, so it's a big one again. So I guess I'll go ahead and get into the plot summary. The book begins on a beautiful June day, with Connor waiting for his brother, Jack, to deliver him a letter from the Radamanthus Society. Connor works for the Society, and they're the ones who've sent him to Wickerly to do some undercover reporting on the local copper mine, Gelder. The Radamanthus Society's report calls Wickerly, quote, a pokey, undistinguished hamlet, but Connor disagrees, thinking they must never have witnessed true poverty. Connor is from an impoverished mining town in Cornwall, where he buried all of his family, save his older brother Jack, before the age of 20. When Jack arrives to meet him, Connor notes how gaunt he's looking. Jack used to be a real miner, and Connor, who never mined before he started reporting, has been assuming Jack's identity to get work. Jack stopped mining after contracting consumption, and now Connor is the caretaker of their reduced family, a role reversal that makes both him and his older brother uncomfortable. Connor tells Jack what he knows about Gelder, namely that it's operated by a woman named Dean, but their conversation is interrupted by the arrival of children, led by a beautiful blonde woman who Connor assumes is their teacher. Connor is immediately smitten with her, thinking uncharacteristically fanciful thoughts about her golden hair, the graceful curve of her back, the solicitousness in her posture. She leads the children in song, and Connor and Jack continue to watch, fully charmed. After the song, a young girl enthusiastically leaps onto her teacher, only to get the teacher's hair stuck on her button. Before the teacher has a chance to attempt to untangle herself, Connor arrives to assist, telling her that he'd sooner cut off his hand than a single strand of her beautiful hair, an expression that he internally admits was the most fatuous thing Connor had ever said in his life. He frees the woman's hair, and he awkwardly flirts with her, telling her that her choir sounds like a band of angels. He's interrupted by the arrival of Christian Morrill, carrying a baby and telling the woman, who he called Sophie, that there's a Mrs. Mayhew waiting for her. Connor immediately deflates, thinking that Christy, the vicar of the town and the hero of Wickerly Book One, 
is her husband, until Christy subtly remarks that his wife has gone to Tavistock to buy a baby carriage. Connor quickly rebounds until Christy tells him that the woman that he just met is named Sophie Dean, the owner of the Gelder mine that Connor is investigating. Connor thinks, in the blink of an eye, the girl of his dreams had turned into an enemy. Sophie Dean inherited the mine from her father, Tolliver, when he died two years prior. She's proud of her work in the mine and proud that her father thought she was, quote, as smart as a man and capable of following in his footsteps. Sophie is business-minded, but she still has the cultish grace of an extremely attractive young woman and notably overspends on fashion that is a bit out of place in Wickerly. Sophie's uncle Eustace, otherwise known as Mayor Vanstone, is the most important man in town save for the Mortons, formerly known as Rachel Wade and Viscount Sebastian Jawbury from Wickerly Book Two. Her uncle, the mayor, wants her to dine with and be courted by a man named Robert Crotty, the son of a brewer who is attempting to social climb his way to the gentry. And Sophie begrudgingly accepts, noting that she is happy not being married at this time. When Connor arrives at the Gelder mine to apply for work, he's sent to meet with Sophie, who is dismayed to learn that the man she had a flirtation with is a minor. Connor becomes embarrassed, then angry, lashing out at Sophie in response to her snobbish dismissal. She begrudgingly offers him a job at a rate he notes is lower than a nearby mine, but when he protests, she tells him that Karnbara is twice the size of Gelder. Connor is dejected, thinking that, Quote, two days ago, she twinkled her eyes at him, smiled up into his face like an angel. Today, she acted as if his miner's garb had a bad smell. When Connor begins his work in the mine, he's paired with a talkative man who's also from Cornwall named Tranter Fox. Tranter, like most of the miners at Gelder, is a fan of Sophie, who remains a source of idle gossip and sometimes lewd speculation among them. Connor's first day at Gelder is a source of tedium and fatigue, he climbs an endless series of ladders, noting that there's nowhere to stop, nowhere to rest. He thinks it was exactly like a treadmill, and needlessly pointless and punitive, though the men condemned to climb it had committed no crime, except poverty and an absence of choices and a social system that sentenced them to low pay and a lifetime of drudgery. When he returns home, Jack asks him what's wrong with the mine. He says, the same things that are wrong with all of them. Low wages bad air, unsafe conditions, no contingencies for underground emergencies. He also overheard the mine captain at Gelder refer to the deaths of a few miners as natural wastage. Later, Winnie and Jack are at the local pub, Connor learns that Sophie is giving a penny reading. Even though Tranter Fox warns him that it's a book for females, Connor can't help but leave to see what's going on. When he arrives, Sophie is reading the final pages of Jane Austen's Emma, his sudden arrival catches her off guard, and Sophie starts stumbling over her words and getting nervous. When she begins a discussion after the book, Connor stuns everyone by declaring that Emma was a snob. Sophie tries to defend Emma, saying that she learned from her mistakes, but in doing so, she highlights some unflattering plot points. Namely, that Emma came around to Harriet marrying a farmer only after it was revealed that Harriet wasn't gentry. Connor becomes even more combative, flustering, and angering Sophie. After the penny reading, they take turns insulting each other, and Sophie refuses his offer to see her home. The next day, Connor falls through a hole in the mine. With no one else to attend to his injuries, Sophie sees to his wounds. The tension around them both is thick, but they resume flirting again, 
with Connor reminding her of the day they met, in the sunshine with no prejudices keeping them apart. He asks Sophie to go for a walk with him, and she declines, explaining that next Saturday is Midsummer Day, a big day for the children's choir. He says he'll see her there. At Midsummer Day, Connor and Sophie seek each other out, flirting and laughing and getting closer. Sophie asks Connor if he had a large family, and he hesitantly answers that he had four brothers and one sister. Had, but the past tense is lost on Sophie in that moment. Robert Crotty finds Sophie in Connor's company and then asks her to come back with him instead to eat near Sophie's family. Sophie declines, telling Robert that she's spending the day with Connor, one of the Tutman in her mine. Later, there's another confrontation, this time with Sophie's snobbish cousin Honoria, who won't lower herself to greet Connor or look him in the eye. When Sophie sends Honoria away, Connor gets angry, saying that she was trying to shock Honoria and that she wasn't being kind but condescending. He leaves her, and Sophie chases after him, offering an apology. She says this is so new to her that she wasn't trying to condescend, and Connor readily accepts her apology, saying that she's easy to forgive. They kiss and make plans to meet after church the next day. But Sophie never shows up. Connor waits for hours, feeling hard done by, and wondering if he had any right to feel that way, since he's lying to Sophie about his identity. Connor is angry, but he won't admit it to himself. He returns home alone and finishes his report on the mine, rationalizing that this decision was not spurred on by Sophie's rejection. In what he calls dry, factual language, he writes about the mine's shortcoming and safety hazards. Quote, The worst was the system of ladders, so he began with that. Now 160 fathoms deep, Gelder still relied on the old 50-foot ladders it had been using for 20 years, virtually perpendicular fathom after fathom, with no resting place except the narrow dollar platform and a manhole leading to the ladder under it. Calculating, he reckoned that at 160 pounds, a man climbing from bottom to top exerted a constant force equivalent to raising the weight of one ton in the space of a minute. The consequence was exhaustion, which led to carelessness, which led to accidents. Wages were low, Tutman and tributors earned an average of 50 shillings a month, but ended up paying about 40% of it back to the company for supplies. Candles, powder, fuses, drawing and dressing costs. The heat was intolerable at the deepest levels, where men routinely lost three or four pounds of body weight at a single eight-hour core. There was no training at Gelder, no apprenticeship. Sophie had installed a ventilator, but it was inadequate, and bad air contributes to miners' consumption. There was an attitude of what Connor called tolerance towards accident and catastrophes, as he mentioned to Jack earlier, talking about the mine captain, saying several deaths a year is natural wastage. When Connor finishes the report, Jack comes up to talk to him about a local girl he's interested in, Sydney Timms. Connor tells him that he's finished his report for Gelder, and Jack asks if he's hurried it along after Sophie's rejection. Connor denies it, but then he guiltily adds a postscript to the report. This says morale at the mine was high and that Sophie has plans for adding more ventilators. He then adds that the report is preliminary and he needs another fortnight to finish his work. When Connor arrives at the mine the next day, he finds out that Sophie has had an accident. He rushes to her home and sees she's injured her foot in a driving accident, which prevented her from showing up for her arrangement with Connor. Connor is embarrassed by the bitter thoughts he had the day before and was relieved that Sophie didn't stand him up. She asks him to come see her again, and Connor accepts. 
They establish a routine. Connor visits once per day, guiding Sophie around her garden, flirting and laughing with her. They have an easy intimacy in their isolation, and they've let their guards down. She teaches him the names of her roses, and they kiss. One day, they're interrupted by Sophie's uncle, Mayor Vanstone. Instead of hiding Connor from him, Sophie declares his presence. It's clear they've been fooling around in the garden and not talking about mine business, and Vanstone is clearly angry about his discovery, but won't confront Sophie in Connor's presence. Connor doesn't feel right leaving Sophie to handle this on her own, but he's not sure what else can be done, so he leaves. He arrives home to find a letter from the Radamantha Society. They want him to work for them in London and write speeches. Connor, who felt like his career has stagnated ever since the attorney he worked for died years ago, can't even be relieved to be getting his life back, realizing that Sophie is the cost of his ambition. Later, Sophie waits for Connor to return to her, thinking that this is the last time they can be together. When Connor arrives, he tells her about the offer from the Radamantha Society, but he doesn't tell her about the investigative work he did in her mind. Even though she was resigned to ending things, Sophie asks him to stay, and asks him to work for her in some other capacity. He declines, and they decide it's their last night together. Sophie invites him inside to her house, and they sleep together. They confess their love for each other, and in the light of the morning, Connor decides he can't leave Sophie. He wants to tell her the truth and ask her to wait for him to be a success so they can marry. He doesn't have time for this confession. They are interrupted by the arrival of Sophie's housekeeper and Sophie's impending plans for a tea party. He leaves, planning to make his confession later. At the tea party, Mayor Vanstone arrives carrying a report from the Radamantha Society. They published Connor's preliminary investigation. Sophie, who knew Connor by his brother's name, Jack, is devastated by this betrayal. Connor arrives at the tea party and explains that he used his brother's name and qualifications to get the job at Gelder, but that the report that was published was greatly embellished from what he wrote. He tries to explain further, but Sophie tells him she never wants to see him again. Later, when he forces his way into her house to make an explanation, Sophie tells Connor that she hates him, that he's taught her how low she can sink. Wounded, Connor retaliates, saying, you're the worst kind of capitalist because you soothe your social conscience with nonsense, leading the church choir, teaching your condescending literature to a handful of sleepy, Sophie-worshipping burgers one night a week, believing your lady bountiful, while down in the mind that you didn't do one damn thing to acquire, men are losing their youth and their vigor a drop every day, becoming weak, demoralized, and diseased. Sophie slaps him, and Connor leaves wickerly. Once he's gone, Sophie starts to see Gelder not through her father's eyes, but through Connor's, and slowly starts implementing improvements, visiting the depths of the mine to give her a better idea of what her workers experience. Robert Crotty visits Sophie to court her again, telling her that he's going to run for a seat in the House of Commons, which is being vacated by a member of the Whig party, Clive Knowlton. Robert asks Sophie to marry him. Sophie declines, but Robert does not accept her answer as definitive. Sophie then finds out she's pregnant from her night with Connor and seeks out Robert to see if he will still marry her. She confesses her pregnancy to Robert, and Robert's reaction is extreme. He scares her and calls her a whore, saying he wouldn't touch her now if she asked for it. Sophie later finds Connor's new residence. He rejected the offer from the Radamantha Society and took a menial job as an attorney's clerk in Exeter. 
Their meeting is tense, and Sophia tells Connor about her pregnancy. She asks him to marry her, but tells him he doesn't need to live with her. She just wants his name for the baby's sake. Connor accepts, but not kindly. They have Christy Morrill marry them in a private ceremony, and Sophie brings Connor to her uncle's house to announce the marriage. It's not received well, and a frustrated Connor tells Sophie that they are now going to Cornwall to visit his family on honeymoon. It's there that Sophie discovers Connor's family is dead. Connor's father died of consumption from his work in the mine, two of his brothers in mining accidents, one of his brothers was stillborn, his mother died from grief, and his baby sister from a weak heart. He now only has Jack, who is also sickly from his work in the mine. On their trip to Cornwall, Connor and Sophie confide in each other and become closer, acting more like a married couple. When they return to Wickerley, Sophie proudly shows Connor the changes she's implemented in the mine, and he is extraordinarily touched. As newlyweds, they are besotted with each other. Connor is approached to run for seat in the House of Commons, the same seat that Robert Crotty is running for. He and Sophie attend a party at Clive Knowlton's house, and it's expected that Knowlton will handpick his successor. Connor and Sophie clash over Connor's outfit before they arrive, and Connor's on edge. At the dinner, when Robert goads Connor about his marriage with Sophie, a drunken Connor makes a scene and demands that Sophie leave with him. She declines, and Connor tells her that she can stay the night at the party, but he's going home. Sophie makes her apologies to the group, and not wanting them to know that Connor left her there alone, she pretends she's leaving with him, instead walking the two miles home. It begins to storm, and Sophie gets soaked in the cold rain. She's violently ill when she returns, and to her and Connor's devastation, she miscarries the baby. Connor is unable to coax Sophie out of her depression, even after weeks of trying. He thinks to himself that if Sophie was sick with grief, Connor was dying of loneliness. They were like two shipwrecked swimmers, unable to touch hands, each doomed to watch the other's slow drowning. Jack tells Connor that he's leaving Wickerly because his consumption is getting worse and he wants to die alone. Connor turns to Sophie for comfort, but she's still nearly catatonic. Dejected, he says that he thinks he's only hurting her, and he tells her he has to leave. Soon after, Sophie learns from her uncle that Connor has been accused of stealing from her mine, and that Robert Crotty is taking this information to Clive Knowlton to discredit Connor and eliminate him from running for house. This spurs Sophie to action, and she rushes to Knowlton's house to defend Connor. She finds Crotty, Knowlton, and Connor together, and says that Connor is innocent. Crotty tries to embarrass Sophie by telling Knowlton about how Sophie proposed to him after she became pregnant. Knowlton, who dearly loved his wife and is touched by Connor and Sophie's affection for each other, threatens Crotty, telling him that if he takes the information public, he will make life very difficult for him. With Crotty out of the running, Knowlton agrees to meet with Connor to see what his positions are, noting that Connor is likely too radical for his tastes. Connor says he doesn't care if he's ever elected for anything. He will always remember this as the day he got his wife back. Of course, Connor didn't steal from the mine. That was Jack. In his attempt to make things right, Jack puts himself in danger to rescue miners from an accident at Sophie's mine, becoming a local hero. In the epilogue, Connor and Sophie are blissfully in love. Connor has newly won Knowlton's seat, 
and Jack is still sickly, but slowly recovering. Yay! Yay! <laughs> oh my god. That was the Love one. being on that emotional roller coaster. I know. <laughs> I happily ever after, eventually. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess we can start kind of at the beginning. I want to talk about the scene where Connor and Sophie meet, particularly the roller coaster of emotions we watch Connor go through as he continuously recategorizes Sophie in his mind. I think this scene works so well in setting up their dynamic throughout the book, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I love it. I feel like Connor has this swept off his feet moment when he sees Sophie and he just like jumps at the chance to meet her. Like we mentioned in the plot summary, her hair gets caught and Connor goes to help. So this is a quote from the book. Impulsiveness was one of his most dangerous failings, but this, this was too much like the answer to a prayer he'd been too distracted to say. He took off across the green at a sprint. So he thinks she's a teacher, which makes sense because she is like with children, but it also puts her on the same societal footing as him. So I feel like there's this hope when he's running out there to help her. And then, like you said, Charles, he's constantly recategorizing Sophie in his mind. Like he sees Christy approach and he's like, oh no, she's the minister's wife. And then he discovers she's not. Then Christy tells him, yeah, that's Miss Dean. And Connor's like kind of desperate for her to be not be the owner of the mine like does Sophie have an aunt a sister a mother like is there another like (laughs) Miss Dean who could be owning this mine and I feel like I want to bring this up because I feel like it shows like with all the obstacles removed like they're they're actually just like love at first sight like it's just like this perfect still moment and then Gaffney does a sledgehammer of here's your instrumental barrier to this relationship. Um, actually, this is your enemy. So good luck. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny to think about that. It's like there's so like Beth said that all the external factors are why Sophie and Connor like can't work. Yeah. But then it's like such a miscommunication heavy book, which we normally characterize as an internal like conflict. Mm-hmm. And it's like this the way that miscommunication works in this book we're going to talk about at length because it's so they're so pervasive but i think for the beginning it's very like romeo and juliet where mm-hmm. like he has this immediate reaction to her and he he like loves her immediately but then like the name and place and context of her is what causes like the conflict and then what plays out throughout the book is that they always are like bringing this baggage towards each other and it's like if they could just get rid of the outside stuff it would work. And then I think it, it has like the an experience of reading a second chance romance, like the level of anguish and like vitriol that they send towards each other reminds me of Private Arrangements by Sherry Thomas. But the reason that couple can be so like cruel towards each other is because they've known each other for so long and they have all this history together. And it's like the question is how can they ever get past their past? Sophie and Connor don't have a shared past, but they have this like really robust internal lives and worldviews that Gaffney builds out. And I think it becomes believable because Gaffney has the strength of developing characters that are whole individuals and not just archetypes. I was thinking about this, especially in the context of the fact that we're at the end of the series. And so we've read all three. And it's just one thing that's astounding to me is how different all three heroes are and all three heroines. Like, I can't say, like, this is what a Gaffney hero is like. This is what a Gaffney heroine was like. Mm. I was thinking about this. Uh, the other trilogy that we've done is the Cecilia Grant Blackshear series. And I think... Grant is also skilled at that, but she there's a family at the center of that. So it's like you have the black shears in different contexts. But in this book, we have six characters 
who are also different. They're all in different places in their lives and all of their relationships are so unique. It's just incredible that she can pull off that like level of anguish for like a first time meeting, which I think you just really associate much more with like second chance romances. Like that it's like, it's like Romeo and Juliet, which is like the level of like of the anguish that we're working with is incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like you have Sophie and Connor when they're fighting and Sophie and Connor when they're not fighting. And I think something that Gaffney does like when they're not fighting is she just like so liberally douses you with sweetness that like mm-hmm. even when they're in these like really intense fraught moments and they're thinking kind of the worst things of each other, you still believe that they're really in love and then also she kind of gives their like their thoughts kind of layers to them like like connor is thinking like i'm probably being unreasonable but i'm just so angry or like or things like that where it makes more sense i do love that you compared this to private arrangements because i kind of thought i was thinking about that too kind of before we recorded this episode because there's a way that uh Gigi and cam and private arrangements are like at each other's throats all the time like they're so passionate it is the same conflict yeah i forgot i I forgot about the plot of private arrangements i just was thinking about the vibes and it's like actually something similar happens in the plot yeah they're just like (laughs) they just came back to me (laughs) yeah it's 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 like uh it's a lie and they're at their they're at each other's throats like the entire time but it's like it's a different type of romance it's not like a conflict that makes me think that this isn't a romance or that they don't love each other Mm -hmm. it's just like they are just too like Sophie and Connor are very, very prideful people, like very intense, prideful people. And I think that's kind of like Gigi and Cam are very willful and like and stubborn. And so they both kind of like are too similar almost in a way where that's why they keep having these conflicts over and over again. Like Connor and Sophie have a lot more in common than you would think. In the last Wickerly episode, we spoke about Sebastian's internal monologue when he's sizing up Rachel and identifying with the prurient fervor of Justice's past. Forever and Ever has a similar showstopper of an internal monologue for me, where Connor is explaining how he feels about mining. I'm going to read it and I want to get your thoughts on it. What he hated about mining was the shameful waste it made of a man's life. Over his head, the whole world at grass went about the business of fighting wars or making children, selling shoes, harvesting fields, painting pictures, reading newspapers, dancing, debating, laughing, weeping, and always oblivious to the subterranean sweatshop underfoot. The ceaseless industry of men picking and hammering, breaking and blasting, tutworking and tributing, and dying young so that there could be pennies and tea kettles and trinkets for the vital, unaware souls above. It sounds so scary. Like the mining <laughs> scenes in this are, I, I think there are a couple surgery scenes in other books that are like up there with like fraught, like scariness. Mm-hmm. But like the the Gaffney really like makes you feel very claustrophobic when Connor goes down to the mine. Um, and it, it's also like Connor's sort of extreme reaction, like extreme way of talking about the copper and tin mines, like I think shows his like sort of one-sidedness it's like i think gaffney comes down on connor's side more than sophie's like politically mm-hmm. but the fact that he mentions like pennies and tea kettles and trinkets to be fair copper and tin mining does like there is like the industry like they do it for other reasons other than these like small reasons like it's it's the the travel and like traveling and trains like, there are other reasons to try and get metals other than the trinkets but it's like it shows the extreme sort of trauma that connor associates with the mining that he can't see 
that this has a, a product like the, if, if it was safer there could be like usefulness for the production he's gotten so one-sided i think probably for good reason but he is he he just associates it with like uh waste and um sort of like lazy middle class people taking advantage of the lower classes yeah i feel like he just associates mining with like intense death like i don't know if we'll talk about this more later but just like his entire family which he's also from like a small town that is like centered around a mine but it's more impoverished there but yeah i like i kind of get it <laughs> with connor yeah it's it comes at such a high cost for him and then like his family who didn't really get to enjoy these trinkets or the or like kind of live above ground like i think that's the thing that's really harrowing for me is like there's the invisible labor of it like the fact that it's like such strenuously hard work and like something in this book miners quarrymen and salt workers which i kind of wonder if gaffney read that book uh, just because right. there was a lot of similarities because when it particularly talking about like the mines in Cornwall, the uh, the tin mines and the copper mines. There's a lot of things that are like almost exactly the same as like how she describes it in her book. But something that he mentions is that the, a lot of the innovation in the Victorian area to mines were not about improving like the health or the safety or the intense manual labor that went into mining. So there were all these improvements that, that could be working with speed, but it doesn't really do anything to help these men who are under there. So I feel like that resentment, like I felt that resentment, like I still am like, I'm extremely angry about it. Like, it's just so mm -hmm. harrowing. I I love this internal monologue. I think it's such a mic drop moment from Connor, Lynn. Like, I, I think that, he, that I understood him better hearing this monologue than I did his, like, really tragic backstory which is kind of the devastating part of the book which like we knew already like he had he had basically said that his family had died but uh sophie had no idea and he kind of had been changing the subject and we didn't quite know the extent of it uh we didn't quite know like how his relationship with his family as well at that point and then the fact that the mine when he goes back to visiting the mine it's like almost completely abandoned it's just this it's just like this deeply sad place. But yeah, I, I guess back to the, the miners, quarrymen, and salt workers book. So the way that she portrays the ladder system as being harrow very harrowing is basically mentioned in that book. Uh, so he says, another health hazard was the lengthened journey to work, which involved long hours of toiling up and down perpendicular ladders. There were mines so deep that not less than three hours were said to be expended on them, and an hour's journey each way was typical. The first symptoms of failing health among miners and the onset of what was known as the miners disease were dizziness and exhaustion on the ladders. So I think like to the miners disease that specifically like when it's coming into Jack, like so he's got Jack is the only person that he has left and Jack yeah. is like very quickly wasting away. So I think Connor is just kind of at this really intense point in his life where he had been striving for something like he was supposed to be the pride of his family and he's almost lost his entire family and he's in unmoored by his current work situation because he wanted to be an attorney and now that's not really working out so i i feel for connor <laughs> he's kind of really he's in a really tough spot yeah, when I was reading this the second time, I did, and when I read Chelsea's um, quotes that they pulled from the the nonfiction book about mining, I was thinking about why Gaffney chooses this industry, 
because I was thinking about her relationship to Thomas Hardy, which we talked about in an earlier episode. And I don't think Hardy writes about mining. Um, so the connection with Hardy is that Hardy also writes about sort of the southwestern part of England and um, like the relationship between industry and farming there. But most of the Victorian novels or Victorian set novels about mining are focused on coal rather than copper. Gaffney's like accurate in that like copper mines are in the southwestern part. Coal mining doesn't really take place there. But like the big novel about Victorian coal mining is How Green Was My Valley, which is set, well, was written in 1939, but is set in the 19th century. And that's set in Wales. And the, But the arc of that novel is really similar to Connor's hometown to the point where like the, there's a younger brother who's like very intellectual and his whole family dies and everyone leaves the town. I wouldn't be surprised if Gaffney was like aware of that novel or the movie directed by John Ford. And then the other one that's like very political explicitly is Emile Zola's Germinal, which is a Victorian novel, but it, it's set in France. But it's very much about labor rights. And the hero of that book, Etienne, is very much like a political idealist who sort of finds himself working in mines. And his romantic arc with the woman who works in the mines is tragic. And then it sort of becomes subjugated to his political ideals, unlike Connors, who Connors is able to figure out a sort of a, a union between his romance and with his working and his political work. But I was thinking about like why Gaffney chooses this industry. And I was thinking about the relationship with Regency novels, which take place earlier than the series on um, relationship with land. Usually that's about farming and production. Like so many of my favorite heroes are like good time fellows from London who like learn to settle down once they're given some land to tend to. Like this is one of my favorite arcs. But then we get into the Victorian period, which is where Wickerly is set. And Connor's speech about mining really sets a different tone for the relationship with land. The gap between Regency set books and Victorian set books, I think, is often that Regency is about farming and Victorian is about industry. Like we have this land and it's like there's this really romantic relationship with the land. And then in the Victorian period, we see trains coming. We see like titans of industry, these tycoons. But the heroes of industry are almost never the ones who are doing the work of industry. They're new money tycoons like Tom Severin in Chasing Cassandra. And that Gaffney addresses this and sort of is like filling this gap in 1996 which is so much earlier than so many of the new money tycoons that I've read, it's kind of wild. And I think that that gap between Regency and Victorian, you can see where like mining is like a subtractive relationship with the land. You're taking something out of the land while farming is additive. And so you're, you're, you're adding something, you're pulling something from the land that you've added to. And also mining hides lower classes rather than mixes with them. Like how many gentlemen farmers have scenes where they wander onto the fields and do labor with their farmers and maybe the heroine sees them with their shirt off and it's it's like this sort of mixing of classes and the farm. But then the the miners, it's like they're literally underground and you can't see them. The level of danger in mining doesn't afford that sort of like mixing of classes. Like who would go down in a mine? Like why would you risk that? And then there's also all this like romanticism of like tilling a field, like looking out on a horizon, measuring the time by the seasonal elements that we sort of have this like English notion of farming that is, gets so romanticized in Regency books. And we that there's no there's no image of that for mining. It's just not available because of the danger and also because it, it's it's this like sort of fraught relationship rather than with the land rather than anything you could romanticize even though the romanticizing of farming is also has its own like problems of like romanticizing labor but at least there's like a a hiography of it there's that does not available for mining yeah i wanted to touch on what you said about like how mining is like literally hiding the lower classes like imagine this was like a movie which i hope for one day uh <laughs> just gonna put that out into the universe just imagine like the camera panning down like you see the like most picturesque ideal green english village 
and say this is our third movie in our trilogy we love wickerly and then it just pans down below earth and just miners in this intense heat like coughing subpar ladders the dark like the suffocating closeness of everything like gaffney creates this image that i think is just like unparalleled like it's hard to get out of your mind and just yeah that image of them being like literally physically below everyone else like emma says you're not like out in the field mixing mixing together and then the other thing i wanted to touch on was like we've talked a lot about like the physical toll but i can't even imagine like what the mental toll of like that kind of work would be and there's this conversation connor has with jack after his first day of work at the gelder mine Connor's already in, in investigative mode and he's documenting like the lack of safety guards like he's listing them off to Jack and we've already said this will be the third time I say this but or we say this but I feel like it bears repeating today so this is from the book quote today I heard Jenks the mine captain talk about the loss of two or three miners a year as natural wastage and that's just <laughs> like that it's acceptable that humans are just like that's just part of quote-unquote progress like that's you know a couple people are gonna die I understand why Connor is just like his main his main emotion is just anger Jack sighs and he says and so it is and Connor's frustrated by this like attitude that's even like among the minors but I don't I don't really know what Connor kind of expects out of Jack like that is literally your life like you're consumed by this mind that's all you think about like as you're working like that's what you're focused on your task like I don't know I I don't think you even have the time or the energy to like care or think of like a different life which is just like devastating yeah so something about Jack and then also Tranter Fox there's like it's a it's a devastatingly hard job it's it's brutal it's awful but the but that doesn't really change like the characters like it doesn't change how Mm -hmm. they are as people like jack is a very charming very fun person tranter fox never shuts up he's like a delight he's always hitting on silly flirting with (laughs) silly um and so i think that's kind of what like what makes it even more sad is that they're, they're both like so vivid so fun so and I don't think they would describe their lives as tragedies I think that would be something that Jack would like really hardly push against but like for Connor it is a tragedy because uh pretty much everyone that he's loved like the natural wastage were his brothers and his dad I like that you mentioned like their natural personalities like the spark is still there and like it's not like the mind destroys them completely it's just what a waste. Like, there's that spark. Like, they these are people. Yeah. You don't really get to see much else from them. And when you were describing, like, the panning down to underneath the mine, I was just thinking, like, oh, how is this, like... I'm thinking of, like, this Black Mirror episode where they... It's, like, mm-hmm. um, it's the one where, uh, like, if you were of a certain class, you have to cycle, like, constantly. Right. And, like, you're in this, like, separate room and you have to cycle. And then... It's the one where um, the girl from Downton Abbey like does the singing competition or whatever. But it was kind of like the the separation of labor. Like yeah. something is providing you with something, but you can't see these people. You don't hear from them. Yeah. They're kind of completely divided from you. And this isn't really an exaggeration either. There's the there's the they're divided from you in the sense that you can't see them working. But like as we'll get to like later when we're talking about class.
class difference. And there's like moments for the, at the Midsummer Festival, Honoria is just like, oh my God, we're not talking to the minors. And, and Sophie's not like, making eye contact. <laughs> and Sophie's like, these people work for you, like or for your father. Like it's right. Because um, her, uh, the mayor also owns a mine. Yeah. And I like that Gaffney, I think this is also true in the, to have to hold is that some, sometimes you read historical romance novels and they'll sort of do like social justice dialogue or talking and it's like this is how things were and it was a problem and this is how I feel sometimes about like suffragette novels it's like oh like once women if once the women get the right to vote then like we've solved the problem and I think this is true for both of the ones that I think some of this is in uh, to love and to cherish but I think to have and to hold and forever and ever more directly deal with it is I don't think you can read either of these novels and walk away thinking like the problem is solved now like even though they're written in 1995 and 1996 like, it's very clear that Gaffney is using them as, like, lenses for critiquing prison and, like, labor practices at large. Like, I think, I, and I'm not sure how she does it exactly. It's just throughout the novel that, mm-hmm. like, Connor's points are, like, calling out the reader for, like, not being aware of, like, the labor that puts that gets put into, like, the products that they use. Just, like, the into having to hold, I feel like Gaffney's calling out the reader for, like, salacious interest in, like, crime and, like, victims and, like, the, the cruelty of prison. That it's she's very careful to not make it seem like these problems get resolved after the 1860s, because of course they don't. <laughs> we still have like labor issues <laughs> now, with especially like I probably in some ways even more so. It's more removed. Like these are these, these things are now happening, especially like from the Western world. Like these things are even more removed. It's not like we're not going to the we're not going to picnics at all with people who produce most of the things that we consume mm-hmm. um, now in the United States. Yeah, and by making Sophie complicit in that, uh, it makes this more of our problem. I feel like uh, in a less deft hand, uh, like Sophie would be the one to solve things on her own. Like she would be fundamentally different from her father. Like she would have like some sort of like natural interest or care or something that kind of like sets her above. And and it's kind of like two things can be true at once, right? Like Sophie can have like some sexism leveled against her for like taking on this job and also be proud that she can do this job in this like traditionally, uh, a traditional men's role, but also she can still be an oppressor at the same time. And like Gaffney is like not interested in making that comfortable, which I think it will get kind of goes nicely with the next point. So let's talk about the confrontation between Sophie and Connor at the Penny reading. So we've talked about how historical romance authors utilize Jane Austen and even Emma uh, on this podcast before. So I'd like to get your thoughts on how Patricia Gaffney uses this book and the Penny reading scene to inform us more about Sophie and Connor. Yeah, I... I love how she uses Emma in this book. Um, I sometimes find in other historicals that pair heroes of like different classes, most of the time the conflict centers on how like the family or society would receive the pairing. I think it's interesting to explore where one character honestly thinks they're better than their eventual partner. And obviously Emma by Jane Austen is fertile ground to draw on in that respect. So I think we kind of referenced this scene already, but I'm going to like Rita. So Gaffney uses a scene where Sophie reads from Emma to define their ideological grounds of each character. So Connor walks in at the end of Emma while they're discussing the book, and Connor calls Emma a snob. Uh, he and Sophie go back and forth a bit, and then we get to this part. She gritted her teeth. Emma Woodhouse was her favorite heroine in all of fiction. She would not stand by while this, this minor defamed her. 
Sophie uh, defends the character Emma by saying she learns from her mistakes and in her heart is a good person. And then Sophie says, and in the end, everyone, Emma, Harriet, Jane Fairfax, even Mrs. Elton, each marries exactly the right person, not only according to their hearts and their temperaments, but their stations too. All the couples, Connor interrupts. Their stations, so Harriet could only marry a farmer because that's what she was born for. No boyishness now. His pale gray eyes speared her, intense and unwavering. Sophie considered the question and answered it honestly. Yes. But she wasn't prepared for the loaded silence that followed, or the uneasy feeling that accompanied her reply, although she believed it was correct. So Sophie, like Emma, is a snob, so it poses this question to the reader, how is this couple going to get together when Sophie believes she is out of Connor's reach? Uh, Sophie has, like, other criteria where she sees a couple from Emma getting married to the right person because, like, they match in temperaments and hearts, which I think uh, Gaffney is drawing on for a reason. Connor is a good match for her, but she's initially blinded by her snobbery. It's only out of true desperation that she considers marriage to him, and honestly, I think Gaffney got Sophie to the point where the only reason she'd marry him is because their other choice is ruination. So the one thing I would change about this book is that I want Connor to actually read Emma because he just comes in at the end and I want to hear his thoughts about it. I thought that was how it was going to, when I first read it, I was like, Connor's going to read Emma by the end of the book and he doesn't actually do it. I do think Emma, the book, has a really conservative worldview. Conservative as in things are best when they remain the same. So Emma should stop messing with everything. Like that's the moral of the story. Emma's right match is Knightley because he's the other person who owns a big house near her, and it's a potential marriage that literally keeps Emma at home at Highbury. Harriet marries Robert Martin because he's at her level. Sometimes either to denigrate Austen readers who look at her uh, look at the novels as love stories or to elevate Austen as something other than love stories, people will say something like, they aren't about love, they're about property and money. Well, like, duh, they're about both. Um, <laughs> Something I love about historical romance is that the best ones deal with reconciling a relationship. It can't just be romance because it, it, that would shirk duty, property, and propriety. I think also this goes to some of the tension we talked about between Regency and Victorian. This is a Victorian heroine who's reading a Regency novel. And the way that class has changed between those two things, like technically Sophie and Connor are like in the Regency model are the same class, right? Like they're not an aristocracy or landed gentry. Like neither of them are at the level of Emma. They're both at the level of Harriet. But now that we have industry, we have a bourgeoisie. And so Sophie is now above Connor in a way, like in the Victorian period that she wouldn't have been in the Regency period because there was no mine that she owns in the Regency period. And Connor gets frustrated with Sophie for not wanting to marry a minor, but she's also the minor's boss. Like, that's a relationship that maybe is fraught in different ways. And she's in this tenuous position as a female owner of the mine, which Wickerly's economy is dependent on. It isn't that Sophie's not a snob. She is a snob. But her snobbishness does have a basis in material reality and, like, concerns for her community. And I don't think Gaffney comes down on the side of Connor's idealism is correct and Sophie needs to learn a lesson given Connor's political aspirations and the accompanying upward mobility that he achieves through those aspirations. Because that's an important part of Connor and Sophie solving their relationship. The honeymoon phase of their relationship is when they're siloed off in the garden without any external factors like class or gender realities or expectations. But those are their realities and they have to deal with their preconceived notions head on. Like you can't just ignore the world that you live in. And I think that's that's the journey of Connor is that he has to recognize 
that he, these these are real concerns for him and Sophie. They can't live in just the garden. Also, Connor, Sophie's a snob, but Connor is also kind of a snob. Like so much of <laughs> Sophie's snobbishness about like is perceived by Connor. Like Connor's like Sophie's thinking this about me because I'm a minor. It's like is she thinking that or are you thinking that, Connor? <laughs> he also sort of has to go on that journey of like what are his like class notions um, that he's projecting a little bit. Yeah, so I I've been thinking about that since I read read your note. Uh, I think if Connor read Emma in its entirety, he probably would have ended up liking Emma in spite of himself because she's a little mean. <laughs> there are moments in his arguments with Sophie where they both go just like a little too far and they're both like exhilarated by it. So something that I've been thinking kind of a lot lately, and you've all, you've both kind of like hit on this, is kind of like the question of like, would Sophie marry Connor if she didn't get pregnant? Like if she didn't have to? And I think part of that hypothetical kind of erases Connor's ambition because he isn't the farmer in Emma or the minor he's pretending to be. Like, as you mentioned, he wasn't raised like his brothers were. And so he has that guilt that's like associated with that. And it's almost rendered useless if he doesn't actually rise up the ranks. So this doesn't really erase Sophie's snobbishness. But I do think this quote from the Midsummer Fair, where Sophie is like looking at him, and she's trying to understand why she finds him attractive is so interesting. So she's thinking, it was something subtler that she couldn't quite put her finger on, but she knew she wasn't imagining it. She'd noticed it before and the way that minors treated him, affectionately, but more formally, a little more respectfully, the way men treat a leader. Then again, perhaps she was imagining it, deceiving herself, pretending he was different from the others because she wanted him to be, needed him to be different in order to justify her interest in him. And so something that I think is really interesting about that is like she is identifying that he's a little bit of an other in the mind and that she sees him as different from the minors. And she's questioning like, am I doing this just because I need this to happen in order to justify my romantic interest in him? But like, the answer of that question, it, you can't really because, like, what she's noticing is real. Like, Connor is different. Connor is not actually working in the mine. He's a terrible miner. Like, he's just been <laughs> able to get away with it. But people like him because he doesn't talk very much and is affable when needs to be. Um, but it, it's kind of it's kind of an interesting thing. Like, it, it, this hypothetical of, like, would Sophie ever do this? Like, well you have to completely erase who Connor is because Connor is not content to be a minor. Connor hates being a minor. He's, he's very ambitious. He wants to, he wants to rise up in the ranks, not, not for class reasons like Sophie. He has that big chip on his shoulder, but he wants to make his life worthwhile, like wants to make his like family's sacrifice, I suppose, or maybe the, the fact that he didn't share in his family's grief he wants to like justify that some way. All the times that Sophie is questioning Connor, like, how do you know this? Like, a meta and he's like, I know what a metaphor is. And she's just like, <laughs> but how if you're a minor? And then he gets incredibly defensive every time. Like, well, what's wrong with being a minor? And it's just like this endless cycle of like, she sees something different. And like just said, like, it's definitely there. But he's just like, why are you looking down on me? Why? <laughs> When he says "et tu brute," yeah. and she's like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, like if you 
want to convince people that you're an uneducated minor, stop quoting Shakespeare, Connor. <laughs> like, it just, he's so bad at lying. Um, but but he wants about, her like, to see him differently. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I just. Yeah, he, he also, like, yeah, he's also, like, bragging about. <laughs> yes, he desperately <laughs> wants to be like, I am more than this, I'm actually. Um, but it's like, I think. Like, with class differences, when, like, the hero is the one who is, like, the lower class. Though, again, it's, like, they're cla- they're kind of the same class. It's, like, this new new thing for them um, where they're, like, there's a difference between them. But it's, like, Connor, Connor feels the need to, like, improve himself. I think there's also, like, this aspect of, like, gender for that where it's, like, if, if the roles were reversed, like, I don't know if Sophie would feel the need to go to London to, like, make her mark on the world. Like, that's not, like, there. And so it's, like, he's trying to make himself on equal footing with his wife. And that's part of the conflict later is, like, like, did I marry you for your money? Like, that's what people are going to think. Like, people are going to, like, not understand, like, why we're together if I'm not achieving a certain kind of clout in the politics. And it's, like, that's something that he has to confront, that he he thinks he has these, like, evolved notions. And it's, like, he actually, he's kind of conservative in the way his, he views, like, their gender relations. And Sophie is the owner of the mind. He's, like, happy for her to be the owner and be accomplished and, like, thinks that she can do it and smart enough. But he still has this, like, sort of chip on his shoulder about being the man who earns less money or has, like, less, like, clout in their marriage so like yeah he has to he has to reconcile that as well which it is like i think that is a secondary plot for them because the labor stuff and the class stuff is so central to the community that they're in but it is like connor has to develop his own thoughts like in his own sort of preconceived baggage as well i first brought up forever and ever in our miscommunication episode because this book is rife with miscommunication but i think it works in the best way So Gaffney actually lampshades it after one of their many arguments, Connor thinks, were they doomed to reenact this stupid scenario for the rest of their lives? How could they break out of it? By talking, of course. But how could they talk when they were both so full of anger and resentment that they couldn't see straight? So how do you feel about how Gaffney layers the conflict around miscommunication in this book? Okay. Look, my favorite Jane Austen quote comes from Pride and Prejudice, and it's angry people are not always wise. (laughs) Um, And I think this is, like, very apparent in uh, Sophie and Connor's second interaction, which shows how they both feel embarrassed and prideful. So it's, um, so they first meet at this, like, magical Romeo and Juliet. He sees her, discovers that actually, yes, it is a Sophie Dean who owns a mine, and then they talk when he gets hired on at the Geldner mine. So this is a thought that Connor has about himself. But pride, Connor had been told a hundred times, was his biggest weakness, and she'd made the mistake of wounding it. When that had happened, his most natural defense was aggression. And I feel like a lot of, basically what Gaffney's doing, I feel like is just like emotion is informing their communication and Gaffney regularly having something Connor P too prideful and stubborn and embarrassed kind of elevates the class conflict that is happening because you have to have feelings about that. Like, it's not just, it's not just like an overarching system in your life that only shows up when it's like convenient. It's always going to be there. It's always going to be present. And I feel like I'm kind of being hard on Sophie. I actually do really like her. <laughs> I'm just kind of like fascinated by like how she is nice, but also snobby and like, Sophie won't marry Robert Crotty because she can't see herself marrying the son of a beer maker. So she has these feelings of superiority, and they don't just disappear because she has, like, romantic feelings for Connor. 
And I'm not surprised a lot of Connor's actions are rooted in anger because I think that is the most common reaction to an unjust system. Like I read before, he's he met, he knows that pride is his downfall. So this is another thought um, he has where he's like thinking about. But pride was still his downfall and he was still smarting from the insult of her disillusionment. The dismay in her voice when she'd said, you're a minor? Two days ago, he'd been a man and she treated him like one. Today, he was a minor, and so far beneath her, she didn't want to stand next to him. Yeah, so Chell sold this book to us as Connor and Sophie misunderstanding each other, but also those misunderstandings being based in truth, which I think is, like, a strength of Gaffney that, like, it, I mean, when people complain about misunderstandings, it's like, why, why don't you understand, like, the literal, like, people, like, literal misinterpretations, I think is the one that people get the most frustrated with. This is, like, it's misunderstanding but like, yeah, like Connor thinks Sophie looks down on him. So she must be coming from a place of thinking he's not worthy of her. But she does look down on him when he's a minor and then when he's a radical, but loves him anyway. So it's like he's doing a bad faith interpretation of the truth of Sophie. Sophie thinks Connor thinks she's silly and uncaring. So he could never understand the depths of her connection to the mine and her community. He does think this. He does think of her as sort of this like uncaring capitalist. But he also thinks that she's incredibly smart and capable, and he sees her kindness with people in her community. This book is not a bodice ripper. Though, actually, I was thinking about, like, when Charles was giving the the plot summary, I was like, it kind of is structured like a bodice ripper because Connor sees Sophie's, like, harm to him as so acute. It reminds me sort of of the arc of a bodice ripper. But the conflict reminds me of how we felt at the end of Stormfire's Happily Ever After, where we had the sense that Catherine and Sean are just kind of going to be keep doing this. Like you get the happily ever after because they're together. But like I, at the end of Stormfire, I was like, I don't think Catherine and Sean are going to be like living a conflict free lives for the rest <laughs> of their, their coupledom. And I do think Connor and Sophie's fights in the future, like when they're married are going to be kind of about this, that she is going to be able to forgive him for the lying about his identity. And he can understand her position in Wickerly, but he's going to be keep, he's going to keep pushing her towards idealism and he, she's going to keep, pushing him towards pragmatism but they have so much practice loving each other through the conflict that you buy the happily ever after anyway but you do have sort of the model of like oh like what their marriage is going to be like is going to be centered on the same conflict over and over again you just now buy that they're going to trust each other a little bit more through those conflicts yeah i absolutely adore how gaffney uses the miscommunication in this book because like uh, as you mentioned, Emma, their perception of the other person's thoughts is only slightly more uncharitable than it actually is. But it's that slight deviation where you find the world of conflict. And they don't want to be in conflict with each other. Uh, but because both of them are so proud and defensive, they continuously land themselves back there. So in Connor's internal monologue, which is the very same page after he says, why can't we just talk to each other, is really telling about what is important to him. He thinks, it wouldn't have mattered if Knowlton had set a crown on his head tonight and called him your highness. When things went wrong between him and Sophie, the world looked gray and paltry and unengaging. He could go through the motions, but he couldn't care. And I totally get where, Emma, you're coming from with the Stormfire comparison and like how they continue on as a couple. And I've been trying to think about those two books and the endings and kind of the structure of the books and how they made me feel. They were both like extremely harrowing. They're both like couples that are like completely at each other's throats for the entire time. 
Um, I, I do think like by the end, there are small ways where Gaffney communicates that Sophie and Connor have adjusted to each other better, which I might be like holding up as more than it is, but it makes me happy to think about it this way. Uh, so for example, the party where they fought, like Connor feels insulted because Sophie didn't like the outfit he was going to wear. And this sets the tone for their entire night. So in the epilogue, it's noted that Sophie picks out Connor's clothes. So Connor might think she's being a little silly and snobby, but it's a concession to her because ultimately his happiness with Sophie is the most important thing to him at that point. So I feel like they kind of understand, like they were able to rank importance for each other. Like at that point, I feel like that small concession kind of signaled was Gaffney's way of signaling that like, Oh, they're they're better at this now. No, I agree, and I think uh, I do like the Stormfire comparison because I think it also has like this overarching conflict that yes, our couple gets together at the end, but it's like those like Ireland and England still don't like each other or get along very well, <laughs> and it doesn't. It's not just like solved at the end of the book. So I kind of feel the same way with this one. Although I agree with Charles, it's a little bit more optimistic and just like as the couple seems more optimistic. Yeah, I still think, like, the overarching conflict of labor is still hanging over you. So that's why it yeah. feels similar to Stormfire. Sophie Storm still I mean, owns a mine. Like, yeah, that's like kind that's of the... I think it, is it, it's the epilogue. He still refers to her as, like, a capitalist. Yeah. It's like, and she's like, oh, like, I've, I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> this is my character flaw. I'll be working on it. <laughs> Get over my capitalism. So... Let's talk about Sophie's pregnancy and miscarriage. Um, These are both very polarizing things to happen in romance. And to top it all off, there's a third act breakup centered around Sophie's grief from the miscarriage. So how does this make you feel? I feel like this, when you look at the Goodreads reviews, a lot of people are like upset about this. But I I don't know how you guys felt, but I, I kind of felt it was coming. It felt, I don't know. I wasn't surprised when it happened, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I didn't get spoiled for like what was gonna happen. Yeah, I don't. I don't, I, I don't think it's telegraphed. Like sometimes it it mm. it is. Um, but I think it makes sense in the plot. Um, I know like miscarriage and pregnancy plots like upset people. Um, mm-hmm. and it's like if you have trauma surrounding that or you just don't want to read it, it can be upsetting. But I don't think it was handled callously. So, um, I said in my notes that I thought I'd only read one other book where heroin has, heroin has a miscarriage that I, I, during the course of this episode, I've thought of like four more. Um, <laughs> but the first one that I read was definitely suddenly you by Lisa Kleypas. Mm-hmm. And that book, I really resent the way that the miscarriage is handled. And I think maybe I was just comparing this to that book. So in that book, the miscarriage, the breakup over the miscarriage, the getting back together, and then the heroine being pregnant again, takes place of over maybe 20 pages i think it may be closer to 10 pages it's very quick in like the the way that they deal with the miscarriage claypus basically uses the miscarriage the way that she uses like a kidnapping in some of her other books like if you know like a claypus third act kidnapping gaffney gives the trauma a lot more weight and i appreciate that the problem is not solved by another pregnancy like that we don't even in the epilogue we don't know that sophie is going to be pregnant again and so I appreciated that because it's like she still gets her happily ever after without like solving the problem of the miscarriage. It's like that would be like so neat. And I think it's kind of a, a cop out to like have it totally resolved in that way. It's like too too tidy for Gaffney. And um, I'm glad that she didn't do it that way because I think the idea that you can you can suffer this trauma and like loss and still get a happily ever after without like the one to one 
correction of it is like very meaningful um and i think this speaks to like gaffney's empathy for the situation so i think it's handled really well obviously people like don't have to read this if it's if that would be upsetting to them but i think out of all the ways that it could be handled it's handled very well i like that you said that that and i agree i'm really glad that uh sophie's not pregnant in the epilogue because sometimes i feel like with death and grief it's very tempting for like authors or filmmakers to just like especially with kids to be like oh you lost a kid and then later on they adopt like another kid or they have another kid and it's kind of like it's not always framed as like oh here's like your replacement kid essentially or like the bomb for like what you lost but it kind of feels that way sometimes and I think people who've gone through that kind of experience it's not it's not like that it's not like you ever are like yeah I'm definitely over that loss that I had or I'm not grieving anymore over that loss because I now have this other relationship that's similar to like what this would have been in my life and like I um did Bailey coin the term baby log Yes. Okay. Yeah. I, came up with I was credit Bailey. Okay. Yeah. I like I said it on Twitter once, and someone's like, "What's that?" And I'm like, "Oh, is that not a term that everybody knows?" <laughs> and I was like, I it's think Bailey. Bailey came up with that yeah, on TikTok. Okay, Bailey. Yeah. It's perfect Bailey. though. It's like because yeah, your epilogue is just to make sure that people know that there's going to be a baby. Mm. Which we like baby logs. So I'm not. I'm not trying to come for the baby log, but yeah, I'm like, <laughs> right. I I enjoy them. But also, kind of like another thing, this book is published in 1996, and like when people talk about the ubiquity of a baby log, it wasn't like there. A lot of these older historicals don't even have epilogues, but they so they don't. Ha- they're not going to have like the required like baby log epilogue, whatever that you kind of get a lot more often nowadays. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me, although you get like you get kind of like baby logs for a sort of baby log for Anne and Rachel, the other two heroines. Mm-hmm. They both have yeah. have children, but only if you keep reading, I guess. But yeah, the miscarriage was something that I kind of like kept from y'all as a spoiler. So he, we Beth was like sharing this dear author interview with Patricia Gaffney, and she talked about they went through like all of her historical romances, and I was reading it, and we were kind of like chatting about it, and then I got to the forever never part, and I was like, "You guys stop reading right now," um, because um, because Gaffney said in that that she just like she wished that she hadn't killed Sophie's baby, and I understand that she feels that way, but I'm not sure how that would work. Because first of all, I think the way that they both Connor and Sophie react to the miscarriage is very important. So neither of them blame each other. And I think in a lesser book, that would be the conflict. Like someone would have like a lot of anger around that. Uh, So Connor could have said that Sophie was stupid to walk home in the rain. And Sophie could have berated Connor for embarrassing her at the party and leaving her to think that she had no other choice. But that's not really how things work. That's not how life works. This is just like a sad, random thing that happened through a variety of factors. Like you could just as easily blame Robert Crotty for antagonizing Connor. It's just, it just kind of like, they're just like so deep in their like mutual grief uh, that this is not even like an option for them. The conflict here is Sophie's like retreat into herself. And this continues on for so long, it looks like there's no way to break out her out of it. And Connor, like, I think the turning point is when Jack leaves Connor. Jack is like, I'm going off to die. And Jack and Connor turns to Sophie, like to tell her what happened and to get comfort. And that she just like is non-responsive. And he's like, I'm just hurting you by being here. 
I don't know what we're doing. I don't know what else to do um, because this is kind of like another thing. Like there's no language around postpartum or I, I don't even think you could call it postpartum, but like the, there's no language around like your, your mental health around uh, losing a baby. Like it's something yeah. that everybody understands is devastating, but it's not really like there's no blueprint for like how Connor can react or like he doesn't know what's going to happen. So even though I don't like that he made that choice, I think that it's rough to read. It's just like, oh, we were going to leave for her. But I think as a, it, it really does kind of show like these two people who are always like so used to seeing the worst in each other, like at this moment where they're truly at their lowest, that's not the conflict that they go for. Yeah. And I think, so the rakes at different points in our time talking about pregnancy and historical romance have gotten in trouble for like being sort of pro being kinder to pregnant characters than some um, people want to be. And I think this book is a good example of like why it's important to like be kind to the way we talk about pregnant people. Like sort of the two threads when people complain about pregnancy and historical romance, the idea that like a baby is requisite for happily ever after that people feel upset by like that sort of promise, like that heteronormativity, the idea that like the family is only complete if they have the baby log. And the other side of like, oh, it's traumatizing if you don't want to have children or you have trauma connected with childbirth or pregnancy to read about characters who are pregnant. But this one, it's like Gaffney deals with that trauma. And I think it's important to show like someone, and I think you could call it postpartum because she is postpartum mm -hmm. even if she doesn't have a child at the end of it. Like postpartum depression, depression associated with losing a child and like a, a Connor like being at a loss like Connor doesn't have an easy solution to like how to how to help Sophie and Sophie doesn't have an easy solution but they still get a happily ever after and it's like even if we're at like our most non-reformed rakes like didactic romance novels should show us how to do relationships it's like shouldn't we show how to have a happily ever after or have a compassionate empathetic relationship through the trauma and it's like if we have this like hard line where like we don't want to talk about pregnancy or we talk about pregnant characters like derisively then you're being derisive to this woman who has like lost a child and it's like I, I imagine this could be very like restorative or like you, you get a lot of empathy for Sophie like if you've gone through this like it, it, and you just want like the full spectrum of relationships and nobody has to read any of these books but I think cutting cutting them out entirely or cutting out that plot or speaking about that plot with like vitriol is is really like a cruel position to take and I think reading this book like really makes that very acute like I think this is like the pregnancy plot to end all pregnancy plots because it's so heart-wrenching but also I think like necessary like I, I don't think I've read any book that deal I've read books that deal with like infertility in very compassionate ways but like dealing with childbirth and loss like I don't think anything beats this book the rake that got in trouble was me <laughs> <laughs> And Emma was, like, so kind before where I would just be like, everyone's really weird how they talk about pregnant characters. It infuriates yeah. me, but we don't need to get into it. We, pregnancy episode to come. We are going to yeah, do we'll a pregnancy someday. episode. You can oh get my the, gosh. You don't know how I made everyone mad. <laughs> okay. So I think Forever and Ever is one of the most scathing class difference romances I've ever read because we're asked to reckon with a heroine that is complicit in suffering. And no matter how likable she is, Gaffney doesn't let her off the hook. What do you think differentiates Forever and Ever from other class difference historical romances? I feel like I kind of talked about this before where it's like, I'm, I like how this 
the class conflict obviously is like an overarching system they live in or like a class system but then also comes from both of them like individuals also perpetuate this system and I think it kind of starts with Sophie she has her father who tells her she can do anything a man can do and I feel like in another book Sophie would be this girl boss titan of industry but like Jill said (laughs) Gaffney is not interested in absolving her because she's doing something like most women aren't at that time to be fair to Sophie she sees the mind as a connection to her father she says later on we were partners it felt like like a conspiracy us against the world when I lost him the mine is what saved me And I think Sophie does find, like, a lot of satisfaction in her work. And there's this conversation later on. It's, like, in one of their garden, one of their garden days. Sophie asks Connor if he likes working in the mine. And she's surprised when he says he hates it. She pushes him and he asks her if she's ever been down the mine. And she's only gone down at this point in the book into Gelder once and it was kind of like a novel experience and she's invested in the mind so she was like fascinated by the experience and Connor can't believe her response and he asks her to imagine going down there every day and then he kind of just abruptly changes the subject so at this point in the book they have had sex and are Sophie thinks of them as like themselves as lovers and Connor only like challenges her to a point because he's getting ready to leave Wickerly and Sophie you know Sophie won't marry a minor I recently read Two Rogues Make a Right by Cat Sebastian, and that has class as part of it, but it's not like the aristocrat character Martin, who's a baronet, thinks he's better than Will as like the impediment for like why they can why they can't be together. But he does feel like he has this obligation to infuse his estate with money, and so his idea he pitches to Will is like he marries someone in like name only and then they just carry on their affair, which Will doesn't want to do. Um, and that's kind of like where the co- the class conflict rests on is just kind of like one small thing that they have to kind of contend with and they can kind of make a life of it anyway. And that story works. And I like those kinds of stories. I'm not saying every story has to be like a Gaffney deep dive and everyone has to be like snobby, but I think there should be more stories like this because <laughs> we do currently with all our Regency romances, there's tons of aristocrats and those like at the time the upper classes genuinely believed like they deserve their money deserve their station like thought they were better than other people and I want that reflected in the stories that I read because I think it's interesting I think it's interesting to read about and I think it's a great character arc that a character can go through yeah that's how you get like Sebastian in book two right like Sebastian legitimately thinks that like he has the right to do whatever he wants like it's yes he's <laughs> he's not a benevolent landowner he's the worst person you can beat in your life like, <laughs> and I and he's like he he there's no like he is so tricked about he's not tricked himself into not thinking that he agrees he's like I'm the worst <laughs> Yeah, he's like, everybody's my plaything. Like, he, he, he joins a magistrate because he's drunk, and then he still goes because he's like, oh, maybe I'll get some interesting stories to share with my terrible friends. Like, it's like he yeah. doesn't see everybody else as human beings. And I think that's something that I miss. Um, you get, I feel like you get a lot more from, like, people talk about how, like, older historicals are meaner, and they are meaner, but I also like that. Like, you get yes. that, like... Um, that kind of like the rose colored glasses about the aristocracy are not really like 
So like Gaffney has this other book called Lily and the the hero of that, that book is wild, by the way. Uh, they, <laughs> and the hero of that book is like literally the worst man. Like the only hero that I've ever been like, if he fell off a cliff at the end of the book, I would have been like, sure. Like it would <laughs> like, it would have been fine. But he's just like the nastiest aristocrat. And like a big part of the conflict is that like the heroine is pretending to be, she's like a hidden aristocrat like she's pretending to be a scullery maid or she is actually a scullery maid while she's in hiding and like a lot of the conflicts is just like how he makes her life so much harder because he's like yeah sure come up and tend to me by yourself and lily's like all the other servants are going to annihilate me if you single me out and he's like i don't care like (laughs) yeah like i think that's that's such a more like I want to say honest, like it just feels, it it feels less troubling to me. Like it feels more interesting to kind of explore these real feelings. And then also, and instead of just having like someone be a benevolent landowner or be like a benevolent mine owner, which Sophie, I think kind of like she comes around, like she starts to do all of this, but she does do it because of Connor. I, I don't think this is something that she would have come to on her own. I feel like when you have someone who is maybe like a nicer aristocrat, I think something has to happen to them that is like makes them different. Like that book I just referenced to Rogue's Make a Right. Mm -hmm. Martin is like chronically ill. So I think he's just sees the world differently than like another aristocrat would. Mm -hmm. Or like, again, going to get Sebastian Ruin of a Rake, Courtney is kind of otherized by his whole family. And so I think he just and he's traveled the world. It just kind of had the opportunity to like pull himself away from like that world mm-hmm. so i think you, a character has to have that kind of experience for me to be like yeah i can see why they're like not terrible <laughs> yeah and martin in two roads make a right like i think that's like the last book in the trilogy and he um in the first two books he like did something really awful like didn't he like uh, yeah i think he raised the rent on his tenants so to, much like, that they had to leave or something like that like yeah it was just like it was something yeah. really unflattering that doesn't happen that often in yeah historicals because they're just like oh they're good landowners they bring bread sometimes yep. <laughs> <laughs> the, what the current buns the current buns lady bountiful i'm so tired of dukes i'm so tired of dukes who don't act like dukes like if you're gonna write a duke he needs to be a dick um at this point honestly there's so many new duke Duke books coming out uh recently but when i was thinking about class in this book the thing that i thought about the most was the film philadelphia story which i often i like i connect that movie with emma a lot because it's also a movie that like everyone sort of ends up with the right class like a katherine hepburn's character thinks she wants to marry like a working class upstart and her ex-husband is like her her neighbor cary grant who is also very wealthy in philadelphia and then she ends up remarrying her her ex-husband. She, th- she thinks that she's, like, doing something noble by marrying the new money upstart. And it's like, this is going to correct her her thing. But she actually returns to the upper class. But it's it's romantic. But in that movie, there's the Jimmy Stewart character who's the journalist who thinks that Catherine Hepburn's going to be a snob. And that he's, like, investigating her marriage and her, her, her wedding. And they sort of come together. And this book reminded me of, like, if – if people often like ship those characters, they want Catherine Hepburn to end up with Jimmy Stewart. I was going to say, I was team Jimmy Stewart, but keep going. Yeah, <laughs> they have so much chemistry what? in the movie. Um, it's, it's, it's absurd. But like this book, I was like, oh, this is, this book is like if Catherine Hepburn and Jimmy Stewart ended up, ended up together in Philadelphia story, but they have this great conversation about like class and like they both, they both recognize that they're both snobs. Like, mm. Catherine Hepburn, like she, she's a she calls Jimmy Stewart an intellectual snob, which I think is kind of kind of how Connor is. Is like he 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 looks down on people who don't understand his worldview, and so he like kind of 
that Sophie hasn't picked up all the politics of Connor immediately. He's like looking down at her. It's like, how can she not see this? And I think he also looks down a little bit on the minors who aren't immediately moved to action. It's like, why can't these people free themselves from the chains? And it's like, they're just living their lives. Mm -hmm. But I think these that that just the politics of that movie, again, I connect strongly with Emma. But the yeah, the, the you can be snobbish outside of just class, but it's always informed by class. Like that mm-hmm. you have all these this baggage and this perception of people and that you often could just like you have to meet people where they are and like take take them for who they are. But it just yeah, that was my my class analysis of related to this book was I just I was like, Oh, this is just like George Cougar, Philadelphia story. We need a movie <laughs> reference every episode. I know. Because I want to compile a list at the end of the year and be like, these are the recommendations for what you need to watch. <laughs> I think my accompanying newsletter for this episode will be about Philadelphia story because I've been meaning to write about it for a few months. Oh, it's, good. It's so good. Um, though I am Team Cary Grant because I can't not be Team Cary Grant. He's just too perfect. <laughs> he is great. <laughs> so we've talked before about how the Wickerly trilogy deals with three different sects of power in provincial Victorian life. So book one is God, two is prison, and this book is labor. How successful do you think Gaffney was in grappling with these huge concepts? And why do you think she chose the Gelder mine as the backdrop for her final story? So I said this earlier, I do think it makes sense for the mine to be last because it's what the community is centered around. I think this is the most like community driven of the books. Like I think Mm. because Anne and Christie's relationship happens in secret. And so they're kind of like hiding their relationship. And then we also get the diary. So structurally, we're dealing a lot of like with Anne's internal thoughts and then um, into having to hold with Rachel and Sebastian. So much of their relationships happening at the house because she's like his housekeeper. This is even though we're we're meeting people from the community throughout those first two books. This one is like so much of their relationship happens outdoors at public events. Like we are very aware, and at the mine, like the mine is also like a public scene for them to interact at, even though they have that honeymoon phase in the garden. It's like very much about the community, and so it, it sort of like suddenly looks outward in a way the other two books don't. So I think that makes sense. And then it's like, oh, like what's what's really at the center of everything? What's at the center of God and prison? It's all about labor essentially like it's a very it's a very like capital like capital as in Karl Marx like way of <laughs> looking at the at the world which I, it is very it's it's the thread throughout the whole book uh, all the whole series it, it ties together it's like what's the answer is like capital and labor is the answer to the other sort of questions right uh, that are raised in the other two books I feel like Sophie cracks a joke like maybe Karl Marx has a sister or something <laughs> like that in the book <laughs> I like what you said that this book is like much more about community and I think that's why I feel like for stories like Landing a Gut Punch, Having to Hold, and Forever and Ever are kind of like on the same level but it's dependent on your like reader experience which is so interesting like I think Forever and Ever stands on its own for sure like you could just read it and it would be fine but because it's like your investment in the community and you've been seeing it all this time I think it just hits so much harder Yeah. And I was thinking too about kind of like uh, how Emma, you said like it makes sense for the mind to be last. Um, Because like if you remember at the very beginning of the first book, like Christy saves Tranter Fox from the mind. Tranter Fox is also a huge character in the third book because he's like Connor's partner. And and then also kind of like Christy's relationship with the mine is also called into question. So like Connor has the um, Radamantha Society. He writes that preliminary report 
And then they take it and embellish it, he said, and kind of made it seem like a little bit worse than what he had initially written. And one of the things that they do is they like implicate Christie, saying like, the vicar isn't doing anything to help. And <laughs> and everyone's like, well, Christie's great. Don't say anything bad about Christie. Um, but like, I was kind of thinking about that too, because like nothing that they said that the Radamanthus Society embellished was really actually untrue i guess is maybe the embellishment like the the malicious intent because like christy is like literally the nicest guy ever in the world and but he's also like proud of sophie he's like sophie's our mine owner she's great like blah 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 he doesn't yeah. think that there's a problem with the mine or that the conditions in the mine are bad which like most people in wickerly don't think that because they don't spend any time there or significant time where they don't know what it's like to to work there. So I think that it, it is is true. It's like something that you have kind of seen throughout the books, but also just kind of like if you're we're going to be like see Sophie kind of like as a person who's like complicit in this. Uh, I think like Christy is a person in the all of the books who I think we've I've kind of kind of complained that he's flawless. Like he doesn't really there's there's a little bit less conflict around his character because he's so good and so perfect. But like if he was truly, truly perfect, he would be like, This is a labor violation or something. But it's just like how how the the world of the time worked like there if uh, someone as kind as christy can do this sophie knowing her flaws like she's a snob she's a little self-absorbed she likes her clothes but of course she can do it as well and i feel like too one thing i guess i kind of want to get to before we wrap up too much is that like emma said this uh earlier that gaffney is not coming like wholeheartedly down on Connor's side and uh we haven't really talked about like the good things about Sophie but like Sophie is incredibly charming like Sophie is a very Mm. like fun and gregarious and then there's also kind of like one of my some of my favorite moments between her and Connor is or when uh Connor will be like where did you hear that? And Sophie would just be like, from my uncle. And then they would like laugh because like they would see like how silly it was that she just kind of like repeats things. Like she's like, she's like trying so hard to sound knowledgeable, but she like that kind of like admit and but she's so prideful she wants to seem like she's in charge but like the way that she like lowers her guard around connor and is able to tell him like yeah i just said that i don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> like it was just so charming uh yeah and i think connor sees like her charm as like a utility like he's not been in a position where he's needed to be charming mm-hmm. it's like he needs to like only ingratiate himself with minors but it's like mo- the moment you enter politics it's like this is a- this comes up frequently in like political marriages in historical romance that like the heroine has to teach the hero how to like have a dinner party and it's like yeah yeah, like if you're in parliament you need to like be nice to people and like not initially like go guns a blazing he's so bad at that Um, (laughs) right it's like if you want to be a radical you need to be like blowing things up but if you want to be in parliament like you need to be be polite at dinner parties i'm a little surprised that Connor never tells Christy that like religion is opiate of the masses. Like I would love if like someone like confronted Christy and was like, this is like your church is like aiding and abetting like labor labor violations because people like they go to the penny readings at the church and they have the parties and like Anne is so fun. Like, yeah, it's like the church does uh, assuage some of the anxiety about like the economic anxiety in the town. And yeah, Connor Connor, I guess it's like also that's the nature of like politics, is that like when you're in theory 
things are like easy and like you're like you have these black and white lines but then when connor meets christy he's like yeah christy's really kind to the people in this community like so it's like i don't want to say something bad about christy in the report even though christy's behavior does sort of try to absolve some of the the issues in the in the mine but yeah like once things get applied they're real real people are at stakes Mm -hmm. and the miners get mad they're like it's also their community like the miners who connor's defending also like view christy and sophie as part of their like wiggerly space Mm -hmm. and like connor is this interloper but it has to it has to be wholesale you can't just come in and blow everything up. Yeah, I liked kind of what you were talking about, about like what Sophie brings to a political marriage. Like I, I think too, like that, I just keep coming back to that scene where she's just like, I hate your outfit. I hate your outfit so much. <laughs> and he's just like, he uses that one like little criticism. Like it just like kind of ruins his whole night. Like he can't take like the baiting from Crotty and the small criticism from Sophie and everything just like blows up into this, huge 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 confrontation um so that's something that he's gonna need to learn how to deal with like if he's gonna do this regularly and then also kind of like the 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 end of that arc like him actually getting this position Knowlton coming around is because of Sophie because he sees the way that like Connor and Sophie love each other and it reminds him of his relationship with his wife which I know is very like okay, yeah, you wouldn't like a single guy. But, like, no, Connor on his own couldn't do that. Like, he, he's not just because, like, Connor needs to be married, but also, like, Connor has no experience kind of, like, tempering his reactions in a way that mm-hmm. is going to be absolutely necessary to him. And I think Sophie's a good way to test him for that because his initial negative reactions are usually when he and Sophie are starting to get into a fight. He also needs buy-in to Wickerly. Mm-hmm. Like, they're even, like, when he's running for the parliament, it's like, like, why would he run in this this district? It's like, well, if he's married to Sophie, he has, like, mm-hmm. the, the like, he's, like, vested in this district. So it's, like, even on, like, a practical level, he needs that relationship to be, to represent this community in parliament. Yeah, absolutely. I guess so for the last three books, just kind of, like, Talking about all the Wickerly books, I'm going to leave this kind of open-ended so we can talk about how they're in communication with each other, but we can also talk about, like, the side characters of Wickerly, because a lot of them had plot points that were, like, very neatly wrapped up. So, for example, you've got Tranter Fox in the mine, uh, Holyoke, who is uh, the bailiff at Sebastian and Rachel's estate, Jack... And you've got Miss Weedy, who finally gets married in this book. <laughs> so yeah, anything that you all, anything that sticks out to you, anything that you want to talk about here? I'm so happy for Miss Weedy. I love her. Oh my god! <laughs> I wish I could read her romance novel. I know. I bet it would be so. Her romance novel would be a Mary Ballag. Yeah, it would. Like nothing would happen, and they just would get married. <laughs> Going between people's houses. It, would be it seems like he pro- he proposed sense. wrong. That's a very Mary Ballack thing because like uh, it was Captain yeah. Carnock. He wanted Miss Weedy to marry him, but like her mother is still alive and is also doing very very poorly, and so Miss Weedy is like, 
she turns down the proposal because the initial proposal did not involve a space for her mom. And so she's like, mm-hmm. I can't do this. But you, you're just, do, you, and, and then he amends the proposal. Like, no, I'm including your mom now. Like, yeah, I'm including. <laughs> and she's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to want to put you through that. You don't want to do this. Like, it's a very, it's a very Mary Ballack situation. I feel like. It is. <laughs> um, but like the whole plot is like getting the proposal. Right? Yeah. <laughs> she literally has a book that is called the proposal. That is like that plot. <laughs> But yeah, so they're happily married in the first book. And I love to like, uh, like Captain Karnak, like you find out the way that he is in all three books. So like you're introduced to him as like her love interest in the first book. The second book, he's like on the magistrate with, uh, which is like a step up for him. Like he's very excited to be on the magistrate. He's in the magistrate with Sebastian and Mayor Vanstone. And then the in the third book, you find out he's a Tory. <laughs> but he's also married to Miss Weedy. He's a Tory, but apparently, like a lot of, uh, like, uh, Crotty was a, a Tory who's pretending to be a Wig just so he can get a seat. Like, right. it, they were like, right. that was, yeah, Tories and Wigs, they're not really that Wig supremacy. Yeah. I've been reading about this. Like, the Wigs can also be. They're really Suspects. Tories. <laughs> yeah. That was something that Connor thought he was just, he was just like, well, I like, I like Karnuk because he just says he's a Tory. Everybody else is acting like they aren't. I don't know if I have much to add other than I just love uh, Jack and Connor's relationship. I feel like sometimes the side characters kind of feel... I'm okay with like them serving a function, like being flat characters, but I don't know. Jack Jack is just so charming and likable, and you just... I know. I want him to have a book. I know this book... This Gafty hasn't written a book in like 15 <laughs> years, and the, these books came out in the 90s, but it's like I would read like Jack as invalid husband... Because he's like on the mend, and he sort mm-hmm. of he, so he gives up his uh, romance with Sydney, so that she has the she's pursued by Holyoke or an earlier series, and then she falls in love with Jack, and then Jack part of Jack's arc is like to sort of give up Sydney so that she can happily marry Holyoke, even though he he's like recuperating, he's like oh this like I wouldn't be able to provide for her like working class, so which is very sweet, but like I would read like Jack as invalid husband to someone like he needs to find a rich wife. Who can just like like like? I uh, could say just like charming, yeah, just yeah. a rich widow or something. I don't even know, <laughs> but I just want him to happily ever after. Jack was so fun. I like mm-hmm. I I loved him. Like I I could absolutely see, and like he definitely has this older brother. Like he has this kind of like carefree older brother. Like you you would think that like an older brother would be like I'm in charge. I'm more serious, but like. A lot of times in actuality, they're just kind of like the weirdos. Like, they just, he was just kind of like doing, uh, I don't like, you don't know how old Jack is in relationship with Connor's deceased brother. So it's like very possible that he's like the third or something. Right. But, um, but he's older than Connor, but like the, the, and that's kind of like the, some of the tension of that, like the caretaker switches. Like I can absolutely see Connor looking up to, cause like Connor is pretty tightly wound. Like Connor isn't really like a ladies man. Uh, so like a young Connor, I could see seeing his older brother, Jack, just like having fun making friends with literally everybody he meets. Um, just like seeking out the joy in life. Uh, even though, Jack obviously has a harder life because he work is working in a mine and Connor just being like, wow, he's got it all figured out. And then uh, Jack, of course, gets sick and then everything goes to hell. 
It, yeah, I, said, I think I said this before we started recording, but it's interesting to see that, like, older brother, younger brother dynamic that we see in so much historical romance where, like, normally, like, in a landed gentry or aristocratic novel, Jack would be, like, the titled one and Connor would have the chip on his shoulder about that. Mm-hmm. But the way that, like, the, the class dynamic, it sort of becomes reversed because it's, like, Connor Connor can go to school because, like, when he's the he's younger and so there's, like, more people working by the time he's ready to go to school. So it's like he actually gets elevated in this way, but he's still like the personalities of older brother and younger brother still play out where like Jack is like the one things go right for. And um, Connor has like sort of like anxiety about like his place in the world. But even though it's like he's, he's sort of also being put into this middle-class position that second brothers often do, but in reverse um, with the aristocracy, but it still plays out similarly in their personalities. Okay. Final thoughts on the Wickerly trilogy. These books rock. Oh my God. They just—they're so good. It's mandatory <laughs> reading for any <laughs> historical romance reader. It's absolutely uh, insane that every single one of them is that good. Yeah, I—I I, I don't know how you wouldn't like all of them, and like unless like you like. I mean, I know the second one's a bodice stripper, and this one deals with like pretty acute trauma. But I think if you like one, you're gonna like all three of mm-hmm. them. So it's like you, if you like one, you're gonna have like three books that you love, which is awesome. Everybody, please go read the Wickerly trilogy if you haven't already. Hopefully, we've convinced you by this point. We think they're so good. Thank you so much for listening to Reformed Rakes. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformed rakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at reformed rakes. Please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. It helps a lot. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time. Hi, this is Beth. During the editing process, uh, we're actually going to take a bit of a break in January. So if you're a patron, you'll still get a bonus episode, but our regular episodes will kind of be on hold. (laughs) We've got some big episodes planned. We're excited for you guys to hear them, and we'll be back at the beginning of February.